Good morning. Uh, we're continuing our studies, our character studies. We're in the New Testament. We're finishing up the Gospels. So we're getting to the, the last characters in the Gospels. Uh, we've studied by now, oh, a lot of godly men and women, some ungodly men and women. And uh, this morning, we're going to take our example from a criminal. And surprisingly, it's going to be an example to follow. Turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we'll start reading in verse 33. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It's asked uh, by the Philippian jailer in the book of Acts, what must I do to be saved. We're going to watch the salvation of a soul. You don't have any accounts like that in the Bible, but here's one of them where you see a man actually getting saved. <clears throat> we know he's saved <laughs> because Jesus said he was going to be in paradise with him. So we don't need to doubt that point. Jesus here is being crucified with a couple of common robbers. As part of the fulfillment of prophecy, in Isaiah 53, it was written, For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked. A prophecy that the Messiah would be executed as a criminal with other criminals. And here we see it. And we're going to follow one of them. Now, it's very important to understand that uh, before verse 40 here, where we see our criminal, that's the one we're going to look at, rebuking the other, we know from Matthew and Mark that prior to this, he had been joining in on the mocking. It says in both Gospels that uh, the robbers cast the same into his teeth, plural, robbers, both of them. So before this point, 
this repentant robber had been sneering and mocking Jesus along with the rest of everybody else. But something happened. Something made him change. Uh, You see here, by the way, we saw uh, the crowd, the leaders, we saw the soldiers mocking, and even the criminals. It says that in uh, Matthew, even the criminals were mocking him. What you have here is uh, mob mentality. You know, uh, everybody else is doing it, so everybody else joins in. You don't want to feel left out, you know, right? You can kind of understand the religious leaders. They've been waiting for this day. And you could just see the venom finally coming out, you know. They've been longing to get their hands on Jesus. And they're absolutely delighted to see him crucified. And so we can understand, I mean, not not in an approving way, but we can understand why they're acting the way they are. But it says in the gospel, the whole crowd just joined in. And even the soldiers, you know, uh, they kind of made a game out of it. The mob mentality. There's safety in numbers. You know, peer pressure. Right? You ever, you ever experience that in your life? You know, you, you'll, you may do something that's not exactly right, you know, but you'll do it because you're getting pressure from everybody around you that, well, that's what everybody else is doing. You don't want to stand out. Right? You don't want to be different. You want to fit in. That's the way we are naturally. Peer pressure. And then, on the other hand, you have uh, nonconformists. Every nation and every time has their little groups of nonconformists, people who refuse to fit in, that, uh, you know, don't run with the herd, right? You ever seen the commercial? I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. There are lots of them, you know, where they, they say, don't run with the herd, you know, when somebody breaks away, you know, and go, goes and use the product that everybody should be using. You know, the interesting thing is that if you, that if you look at these people, they all look the same. You know, a hunk with a five o'clock shadow dressed the same as all the other hunks, you know, or a female, you know, look just like all the other females. They make conformity out of nonconformity. It's funny. I grew up with that. I think most of us have experienced that all the way through. I didn't go to church. I never went to church until I got saved in 1972. Uh, and so I fit right in, you know, with the nonconformist crowd, of course. What was interesting was from grammar school, I can remember seventh grade, you know, junior high, high school, college. Um, to be a nonconformist, you had to act and, and, and dress a certain way, and it changed as time went on, you know? So you were very careful to wear the right stuff and talk the right way and listen to the right music and and think the right thoughts and have the right opinions, you know, so you could be a nonconformist. To my shame, I talked about Jesus a lot, you know, before I got saved. 
but it was in order to fit in. I was swearing. It's amazing. You know, that's, that's the way a lot of people get started on drinking and smoking and swearing. That's how I got started because everybody else was doing it and I had to do it. And what's funny is the world approves of nonconformists, you know. Um, some of you know, we, we uh, enjoy the old uh, Gilbert and Sullivan operas. And one of them is called Patience. It's about the ascetic movement in England in the late 1800s. The most famous ascetic was Oscar Wilde. But um, they, they, they look down on everybody else, you know, with a sneer. They, they, they didn't want to belong to the herd, you know. And they called everybody else Philistines. That was their word, Philistines, you know. They, they, every, the ordinary people were, uh, you know, crass and barbaric, but they were refined and aesthetic. That was the word, aesthetic. They go around with a flower in their hand and they don't wear primary colors, you know. It's funny. When I was in Berkeley as a student, then it wasn't Philistines anymore. You called, um, the, the mob, you, you referred to it as the establishment. Anybody remember that, that word, that phrase? The establishment. You called it that, you know, it, it's like this uh, organized uh, center of authority, you know, that um, is immovable and inflexible. And so to uh, exhibit your disapproval, I, I know a lot of guys would go around with this big round uh, badge, question authority, with a big question mark on it. There were just bumper stickers. People would wear these things. On campus, and you'd admire people, you know, who go around with this question authority thing. You know, they're nonconformists. Everybody wearing the same badge. <laughs> it's interesting that uh, you know the the world professes, uh, you know, to to want everybody to be the same, and yet uh, a lot of people consider nonconformists as role models, you know, as heroes. You know, wow, they're they're willing to stand apart and so on. Not really. They're fitting in with just another crowd, aren't they? You know, the world has more than one mold they can squeeze you into. You want to be a nonconformist? All right, we got a mold for that too. You know, we got more than one nonconformist mold. Take your pick. What kind of a nonconformist do you want to be? You know, that's what, that's what first, uh, pardon me, Romans 12 verse 2 is saying when it says, uh, be not conformed to this world. The word literally means don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And that's what's going on here. That's what you see here. It's kind of like uh, the crowd in the book of Acts. Remember, we talked about it uh, sometime last year where uh, Paul was bad for business in the, in the, in the silver business because uh, he was preaching one God. And they couldn't uh, sell their idols anymore. Remember that? And so the crowd gets in the big uh, arena there. And for two hours, they chanted, great is, um, uh, what's her name? Athenia? Diana of the Ephesians. Yeah, thank you. Great is Diana of the Ephesians for two hours. As if saying it long enough would make it true. You know? Let me tell you. You're going to be a Christian, you're going to, you're really going to leave the crowd. Do you know that? 
Jesus said that. Jesus said, if the world hated me, it will hate you. That's real. You want a real hero? Forget the nonconformist. Look at a, a real committed Christian. Now, there's a role model for you. Somebody willing to stand apart and identify with Jesus. It's getting less and less popular, by the way, isn't it? You know, 50 years ago, it was expected of you almost. Times are changing. <clears throat> I remember um, one of my sons in college had an English class. You know, the, one of the words of today uh, is marginalization, being marginalized. You know what it means to be marginalized? If you're any kind of minority at all, you're pushed on the edges. You're excluded, okay? You're not cast. You're marginalized. And so uh, all the students in the English class were supposed to write a paper on a marginalized group. Pick one. Blacks, Hispanics, Asians. Anybody but white. Uh, you know, Muslims, Hindus, you name it. Women. And so my son said, oh, I'm going to pick Christians. <laughs> and, he, and when he told this to the teacher, the teacher said, what? Because in the teacher's mind, they're the ones that are not marginalized. They're the ones in the middle, right? That's the vast majority of everybody. If you're a U.S. citizen and you're not an atheist, you're a Christian. Okay? That's, that's her thinking and that's the world's thinking. All right? And so how, how can this huge group of Christians be marginalized? And uh, unwittingly, she walked right into uh, her own trap when Dave said, well, no, you don't understand. I'm a Christian. I believe the Bible. And she goes, you, mean, you don't mean you take the Bible literally, do you? <laughs> Isn't that what she said? And she proceeded from there to marginalize my son. <laughs> Interesting. They don't get it. Look, what's the song we sing? Stand up, stand up for Jesus. We haven't got very much time to do it in. So do it. All right? you, want, you want to be a real nonconformist and not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Then identify with Jesus. Because that's what our criminal is going to end up doing here. He began by mocking, just like everybody else. His fear of men was greater than his fear of God, but something happened to change him from the inside out. We don't know what it was. Certainly, he heard the, uh, the mocking of the crowd around, and he began to understand what the claims were of this one who was being crucified with him. Because the crowd was saying, if you're the son of God, if you're the Messiah, if you're the king of the Jews, he began to hear this and, and realized that this one had made these claims. But I don't think that was what really did. I, you know what I think did it? It's right there in verse 34. As he's hanging there, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. I, I think that cut him to the heart. You see, because he's, he's mocking. And that them, forgive them, includes him. 
And he heard Jesus addressing him that way, saying, Father, forgive this man. He doesn't know what he's doing. And I think it cut him to the heart. God finally broke through to this man, you know. And I think it just broke his heart. Because I'll tell you, this guy does a 1A. The Bible word for doing a 180 is repentance. Does this guy ever repent? And uh, you want to know what it takes to be saved? Study this guy. I'll tell you. He's a perfect illustration of what it takes. Uh, the first thing I want to point out, it's not the very first thing he does. The first thing he does is rebuke his uh, fellow robber. But um, he takes sides with God against himself. That's very important. You know, it's hard for people to agree with God about themselves. That's it, kind of silly when you think about it, isn't it? <laughs> but it's true. I can't count the number of times I've been in a conversation like this. I'll just boil it down to a, a few brief sentences. You're, you're, you're talking to someone about spiritual things and you say, um, you believe you're a sinner, you know, in so many words. And, and, they, and they eventually, sometimes right away, sometimes it takes a while. Yeah. Do you believe you've broken God's laws? Yeah. Sometimes it takes a while, you know, but yeah, they'll, yeah, uh-huh. But here's the kicker. Do you believe you deserve to go to hell? Oh, no. No, no, no. No, I'm a sinner. Yeah, okay. I've, I've done some bad stuff, but no, I don't deserve the judgment of God. No, I'm not that bad. You know, that's, that's the hurdle that keeps most people from heaven. Right there. You want to put your finger on it. There it is right there. No, I don't deserve the judgment of God. You know what you're saying by that? You're saying Jesus shouldn't have died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross because you deserve the judgment of God and he took your place. It says in Galatians that if we can get to heaven by being good people, then Jesus died in vain. He was wasting his time, but he wasn't. You think you belong to go to hell? You do deserve the judgment of God. Amen. Yeah, I do. And so he took sides with God against himself. Listen to what he says. He says, uh, verse 41, we indeed justly are under this condemnation. Talking about himself and his, his buddy there. For we receive the due reward of our deeds. You hear that much, Tom? I'm getting what I deserve. Huh? Yeah, I should be locked up here. I, I committed a crime and it's good that I'm here. Huh? No? Not very common, is it? Yeah. It's the way with God, too, you know. Everybody else is going to hell but me. You know what? Jesus said most people are going to hell. Jesus said that. Who's right? <laughs> I think Jesus is right. You know what it says about God in Romans? Let every man be found a liar if it takes that to uh, prove God true. If everybody's a liar, if that's what it takes, then that's the way it's going to be. If God must be true. Be careful about following the crowd. <laughs> the crowd is like a bunch of lemmings. <clears throat> uh, 
That's the point past which most people don't get. It's interesting, you know, we use this word. I, I think about it when I'm up here preaching sometimes and I'm talking about going to heaven. I use that word saved. A lot of people, you know, particularly people that aren't Christians, they don't understand why do you use that word. You know, it, first of all, it's a Bible word. Salvation. That's, that's what it means to go to heaven. You have salvation. The Bible says you have been saved. What does it use that word? Because there's something we need to be saved from. There's a danger we're in. And it's going to hell. So you can't get around that point. Okay? Be nice if you could, but you can't. You need to be saved. That's how you go to heaven. And Jesus is the only one that saves. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be what? Saved. Saved. Yeah, Acts. This man didn't fear God before, but he does now. That's interesting. That he, that's uh, the first thing he points out to his friend. He says, do you not even fear God? Suddenly he's got the fear of God in his heart. I think suddenly, you know, it's amazing how clearly you see, isn't it? When you realize who you are, who Jesus is. And where you're headed. And, and now he realizes that, uh, this is very serious what they've been doing. Blaspheming this one. And he's beginning to fear God. I love it. Uh, you know, you, we're, we're talking about bad stuff here. Fear now. Isn't that terrible? John Newton wrote a great hymn. It, it's sung by everybody. Amazing Grace. You know, it's, it, it hit number one on the charts. Incredible. You ever listen to the words? Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Isn't that it? That was a wonderful insight on the part of John Newton. It was the grace of God that taught my heart to fear what's going to happen to me in the hands of an angry God. Praise God. And grace, my fears relieved. First, God has to teach you to fear. You never get there. If you're never fearing the judgment of God, you're not going to be saved. You can't be saved because there's nothing to be saved from, you think. But if you allow the Holy Spirit to teach your heart to fear the judgment of God, the wonderful thing is then his grace relieves your fears by pointing you to the cross where Jesus paid it all. Wonderful insight. It was grace that taught my heart to fear He says, we indeed justly, we're getting our due reward. He's saying, I am getting what I deserve. Remember, by the way, uh, these guys are being crucified. It's a horrible way to die. It's going to take six hours. And they're not going to be dead after that. They have to break their legs in order to finish them off later, to get them off of there before the Sabbath starts. Can you imagine six hours of agony to die? And he's saying, yeah, I deserve it. I'm getting what I deserve. It's interesting. Then uh, he, after rebuking his friend, he says, this man has done nothing wrong. Talking about Jesus. How does he know that? Everybody in the crowd is agreeing he should be there. Listen, the religious leaders decided that he needs to be crucified. Aren't they a pretty good authority? Who is he to contradict them? The governor himself. Pilate put him up there. Hello? How can this? 
How can he have the audacity to say, this guy's done nothing wrong? Whoa. He's not running with a crowd anymore. <laughs> this man is done nothing. Now be careful about that. You'll see some commentaries and they'll say, yeah, yeah, this, uh, this, uh, robbers realized that Jesus was without sin. He was sinless. Well, it'd be nice to say that. I don't, I don't think his understanding runs quite that deep yet. You know, be careful about giving too much credit to some of the people in the Bible. Like the blind man, remember? Uh, they, the Pharisees said, come on, say it. He's a sinner, isn't he? And the blind man says, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. All I know is once I was blind and now I see. You know, I think he learned real fast that Jesus was sinless. He's just, he's only a few hours old in the Lord. Give him a break. Okay. But he he's, is saying plainly, he doesn't deserve to be here. I do. He does not. He hasn't done anything wrong. That takes a lot. That's faith. Faith is uh, believing something that's true, particularly from God, in spite of what your senses tell you. In this case, your senses would tell you everybody's saying this guy's guilty. Faith would say, no, everybody's wrong. This guy's innocent. But his faith is a lot bigger than that. Not only does he take sides against himself, but he leaves the crowd. That's his fellow thief, the rulers, the religious leaders, the crowd, the soldiers, Pilate himself, and utters this wonderful verse 42, the golden verse, really, of this section. Listen to this. This is like Job. Job, hundreds of years before Jesus. When Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. Wow. What a statement, huh? Well, listen to what this guy says. He turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Wow. He's talking to a man that's dying. He's dying. They're going to both die, okay? They, he knows that, all right? He says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Wow, isn't that great? Whew. I'll tell you, the Holy Spirit was at work here in this guy's life. Listen, just let's take it apart word by word. Lord, he begins. I'll tell you, the, the visual contradicts that. Here's this guy being crucified just like me. Where's the crown? Where's the throne? Where's the scepter? Where's the power? He's helpless. They said, save yourself. He's not doing it. Lord. And it's interesting of all the things he could have said. You know, he could have said, if he really does believe this, he could have said, Lord, let me sit at your right hand. Or, uh, you know, Lord, I want to be a, a ruler with you or I want to have a big fancy house. You know, in your kingdom, please give me a million bucks. You know, you see what he says? All he says is, Lord. Remember me. That's it. He puts it in the hands of Jesus. Whatever Jesus does is going to be good for him. You see, he knows he's safe in the hands of Jesus. And so all he asks is, Lord, remember me. I love it. And as I stress, he doesn't say, uh, I hear you're a king. If, if that does happen, I don't see how it's going to happen. But if 
you come into your kingdom. No, he says, when you come into your kingdom. Isn't that great? There's no doubt about it. Now, this guy has to be believing a lot to say things like that, like resurrection, among other things, for both of them. When you come into your kingdom. I love it. <laughs> Interesting. And we're not bad-mouthing disciples. They're off at a distance, the disciples. You know, most of them have fled. There are some at a distance, mostly the women, you know, quietly watching this whole affair. And here is this guy. You know, later on, they don't even want to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And here is this guy already believing Jesus is not only going to raise from the dead, he's, he's going to rule. <laughs> what a, a good starter disciple. What do you think? huh? That's a pretty good starting point. And now I love the scene. Just stand back and, and contemplate it here. You have the son of God being crucified. By his own creation, spit on, mocked, scourged, beaten, says that uh, his visage was marred more than any man in the prophecy in Isaiah. Unrecognizable. I'll tell you, the whole crowd should have been on their faces, huh? At this awesome moment. But they're there mocking. But out of that whole crowd, there's one guy. One man who says what should be said. You're a king. You're going to come into your kingdom. Praise God. This man has done nothing wrong. At least somebody said it, and it was a criminal. Isn't that fitting when you think about it? You know? It It wouldn't have fit in the religious leaders' mouths. But... You know, it's a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like this guy and like me. And so it's fitting that out of everybody at the cross, the one man who says what should be said is this guy. He stands apart with Jesus. He's the only one there now who's not mocking. He's worshiping. He's he's left the herd behind. Well, I'll tell you, uh, he gets his reward. How would you like to have eternal assurance from the lips of Jesus himself? Wow. Wouldn't that be cool? And I'll tell you, the Lord is economical with words. I've said that many times. We use so many words to say one thought. Jesus uses only 13 words here, and they're packed. Let me tell you, they are loaded with assurance. In fact, there are only, there are only 10 words in the Greek in the original. He used 10 words to speak a volume here. Listen to what Jesus says. We'll look at a word at a time. First of all, assuredly. Verily, verily, it says in the old King James. Verily, verily, I, Jesus said that over and over again. Why does he say that? He doesn't, he never lies. He doesn't have to say that. Does he? Does Jesus say, have to say, no, I'm telling you the truth this time. <laughs> no. But when he says that, it's like something that's so true, you, you can't make it any more true. Well, he does it anyway. You know, assuredly. And then I love that phrase. He has, I say to you, isn't that good? That, what, read my lips. That's the modern interpretation of that. This is Jesus speaking 
to you, one-on-one. Verily, assuredly, I say to you, and of all the things he could have said, this day you will be with me in paradise. Wow. Now, there are so many wonderful things about that. This day, first of all, isn't that great? He doesn't say, you know, when I come to, okay, when I come into my kingdom, I'll, I'll try to remember. That could be centuries from now, you know? And by the way, it will be, because it's already been several centuries. Though, he's gonna come into it, by the way. Do you know that? Listen, you want proof that Jesus is gonna rule? I'll tell you, one of the best proofs is he's already died and risen again. He's done the hard part. <laughs> if he's gonna do that, man, I'll guarantee you, he, since he's the rightful ruler, he's going to come and take his place. Guaranteed. Today, he says, you will be, and I love this, with me. Of all the things he could have said, I'll give you a million bucks, I'll give you the house, you know, whatever you want. No, Here, here's what you're going to get. You will be with me. Is You think that's enough? Huh? That's why it says it over and over again to comfort our hearts. It says in First Thess, you know, there, wherefore comfort one another with these words. With what words? Uh, we shall ever be with the Lord. With the Lord. That's all the words I need. I don't know what else is going to happen. I've, I've read some descriptions in the Bible. But it, as it says, eyes not seen and ears not heard the wonderful things that God has prepared for them that, that love him. I just can't imagine what it's going to be like. But the only thing that's important to me is I'm going to be with Jesus. And so I think it's wonderful that that's what Jesus chose to tell. This day you will be with me. And then it's very important. He didn't say heaven. That's why it says paradise in your translation. He paradiso. That's the word he used. That word only occurs three times in the, in the New Testament. Once in Revelation, once in Second Corinthians. It, but Jesus only says it once recorded. Paradise. And it's wonderful that he used that word. We, we don't uh, have all the background for this word the way this man would have, but it indicates a place of, well, we, we use it, you know, oh, it's paradise. You know, you've said that, right? You've heard that? You mean it's just, oh, it's just so wonderful. It's such a wonderful place. Well, that's the idea. It's communicating this incredibly wonderful place where you'll be eternally happy. And so Jesus chose that word. Doesn't heaven mean that? Yeah, it does. But paradise for this guy was a very strong word. And so Jesus chose that one. That's wonderful. This day you shall be with me in paradise. Well, we don't know what the thief thought about that, how he reacted. You wonder what went through his mind in verses 44 and 45. Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The loud voice he cried out with, of course, is that single word in the Gospel of John. Finished. You wonder how much this guy understood as he saw the Son of God writhing in agony 
suffering, torment beyond what anybody will ever understand so that he could keep the promise to this guy. You see, it was necessary as he paid for his crimes. All of them. All of his sins. And yours. And mine. And everybody. You know, it's ironic. <clears throat> the um, the phrase they keep using on Jesus, you know. He saved others himself he cannot save. It's ironic, isn't it? Because in order to save us, he couldn't save himself. He could have saved himself. You know, you, you know, Jesus said that when Peter drew out the sword, he said, don't do that. Don't you know that right now I could ask of my father and he'd send 12 legions of angels. You know what 12 legions of angels would do? We wouldn't be here. OK. As they used to say in the Star Trek game, the earth would be an expanding cloud of subatomic particles. There wouldn't be anything left. They could have delivered Jesus like that. He could have done it himself. But he said, I'll ask of my father. And he would do it. Yeah, he could have saved himself, but then he couldn't save us. He couldn't save you. He couldn't save me. And so, what a stoop. It's incredible. We've been talking about this criminal taking a stand finally with Jesus. You know, in order to save us, Jesus was not too ashamed to come and be identified with me and with you. He was willing to be identified with this criminal. What I mean by, by that is he bore his sins. He took his sins, my sins, your sins. Peter says it this way, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. Talk about crimes here. It's a wonderful uh, hymn. We'll, we'll close with it. We're almost there now. Uh, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. One of the verses is, was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity. Grace unknown and love beyond degree. Yeah, it was for crimes that I have done. He groaned. He didn't have any sins. He groaned because of me. Well, we really have two criminals here. We focused on one, but there were two of them. One was saved and one was not. There's two of them, I think, for a lesson. One is in paradise. How do I know that? Because Jesus said, starting that day. It's been 2,000 years he's been in paradise. Wow. And it's just starting. With Jesus, by the way. The other one's in hell. And he's been there for quite a while. One is given as a sign of hope. And one is given as a sign for a warning. One followed Jesus and one followed the crowd. Whom will you follow? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we have said earlier, it's a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Lord, I am so glad that you did that because I'm a sinner and I needed saving. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. And we pray for anyone here who has been fence-sitting or staying in the crowd, that they would make this the day when they break away from the herd and take their stand with Jesus, that they would 
come to the foot of the cross, acknowledge themselves as a sinner, take sides with you against themselves and look up and see the Son of God purchasing paradise for them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.